I'd like to welcome you to Prairie View Christian Church. I'm glad you've chosen to worship here with us this morning. If this is your first time here, we are in the fifth week of a seven-week series going through the book of James. And being that we're quickly approaching the end of the book of James, I wanted to quickly recap a couple of the key themes that we've been discussing up to this point. The first thing we discussed in James chapter 1 was the challenge from James. This book is full of challenges to stay steadfast on our faith. When challenges come, when hardships come, when times get difficult, to stay steadfast, to hold your head up high and push through those difficult times, maintaining your faith as you do it. Another thing we talked about is the need to be doers of the word. Not just people who maintain our faith in good times, but people who maintain our faith in bad times. And to have a faith that infiltrates not just the things we believe in our minds, but rather the way we act in all the situations that life throws at us. We talked about the need to tame our tongues and how our words can cause great, great damage. And how insults and gossip and rumors can tear apart churches. And James says the tongue is like a little tiny spark that can start an entire forest fire. We're challenged to tame our tongues. On top of that, we're challenged to hold our leaders to high standards, not just in what they say, not just making sure they believe the right things and say the right things and teach the right things, but that our leaders are seeking righteousness. That the lives of our leaders reflect the kind of lives we would expect them to have, and the kind of life that God expects them to have. We talked about all these things that seem to be a little bit overwhelming at times. Stay steadfast in your faith. Be doers of the word. Tame your tongue. Hold your leaders to high standards. And as you hear those things, you're probably thinking, you know, that's a little bit overwhelming. That's a lot of stuff that you're telling me to do here, James. I really don't know that I can handle all that. And James says, hey, you know what? That's okay. Because all throughout these challenges, James consistently comes back to the theme of God's wisdom. To trust in God's wisdom. That as you do these things, as you strive to be these kind of people, you're not just doing it on your own. You're not alone. You're not doing it by your strength alone. You're doing it with God's help. So seek God's wisdom As you do all these things, as you strive to be the church that God has called us to be, and as we strive to be the people that God has called us to be. Now, being that we're quickly approaching the end of James, I wanted to give a quick preview of what comes after James. We're going to be in James next week, and then the week after that. We'll close out September in the book of James. The first week of October, we're going to be starting another series through the book of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is one of those books that we don't often read a whole lot. But if you have, you may understand why I'm going to refer to this series as building blocks. We're going to talk about building blocks, the building blocks of our community, the building blocks of our faith as followers of Christ. So if you haven't read it, feel free to pick it up and read through it over the next few weeks as we get ready for that. And if you have read it, think about what that means. So we'll be in Nehemiah in October. We'll finish out James in September, and we hope that you will be here for all of it. So with that, I'm going to pray. And then we'll get started today in James chapter 4. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've blessed us with. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy and your patience. God, thank you for your justice. 
God, I pray that as we strive to be more like your son Jesus in the way that we talk, in the way that we work, in the way that we play, God, I pray that we won't just do it on our own. We won't try and rely on our own strength, but rather we'll trust the wisdom that you'll give to us if we ask for it. I pray that you'll give us the humility to ask for that wisdom at all times. Be with those who are hurting. Be with those who are suffering. Be with the least of these. God, we love you. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for his broken body and his shed blood on our behalf for the forgiveness of our sins. We love you. We ask all these things in his name, and we give you the glory. Amen. So in James chapter 4, we're going to be starting out in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, feel free to grab one from one of the chairs underneath a chair around you. Feel free to use one of those. We'll also have passages up on the screen if you'd like to use one of those. But we'll be in James chapter 4, verse 1, starting in verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So James starts out and he says that there are quarrels and fights in this community that he's writing to, these churches that he's writing to. And as we've talked about, they're facing quite a few hardships. They're potentially facing a famine. They're facing abuse at the hands of the people who have more money than they do. They're facing persecution from those who don't agree with their teaching of Jesus as Savior and Lord. And when you have all these hardships, it's a little bit easy to understand how things could be a little bit tense. Things could be a little bit on edge. When times are hard, when you're stressed out, even the people that you love, the people that you're closest to, you often find yourself taking it out on them. So there's fights and quarrels in this church. But James doesn't say it's because of hardship. He doesn't say it's because of stress. It's because of hard times. He says that it's because your passions are at war within you. Well, what exactly are your passions? He goes on a little bit deeper and he says, you desire and don't have, so you murder. You covet and can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. The passions that are causing these fights, that are causing these disagreements, that's causing this division, is not just hardship, it's jealousy. And it's selfishness. And it gets so bad that James seems to indicate that it could even lead to murder. That's pretty bad. That's a lot of jealousy and a lot of selfishness if you're killing someone. So those are the core issues here. But then he goes a little bit deeper. He says you do not have because you do not ask. Now here's the thing. James told us in chapter 1 that every good and perfect gift comes from God. And that he will give it to you if you ask for it. He will give you his wisdom if you ask for it. Now, James says you do not have because you do not ask. If you're a follower of Christ, if you believe that God answers prayer, why wouldn't you ask God for something that you want? Seems to make sense. You ask God for something that you want, right? That seems to be what James taught in chapter 1. Well, 
The reason you might not ask God for something that you want is maybe because you know that the thing that you want is not the thing that God wants for you to have. It's like the husband who asks God, God, I pray that you will give me a girlfriend to meet my needs the way my wife doesn't. No self-respecting Christian guy would ever have the audacity to pray to God and say, God, I pray that you will give me a relationship so that I can commit adultery. Now, he'll go about it on his own methods. He'll go about it with his own strength to try and find this relationship, try and find someone else. But he wouldn't dare ask God for it. The question has to be asked, when we ask God for things, are we asking for things that we know God would want for us? And if we can't say for sure that God would be happy if I got this thing, the question has to be asked, should we want it in the first place? But he doesn't just say that you do not have because you do not ask. He says that even when you do ask, you ask with the wrong motives. You ask wrongly. There are good things to ask for. The preacher who asks that God would give him a better ability to preach the word, better delivery, better clarity, better captivating illustrations, that's great if the preacher wants to ask God for those things. But what if he's asking God for those things not because he wants more people to hear the gospel, not because he wants more people to hear of God's grace and God's desire to reconcile them with himself, but what if he's asking for that so that he can get more listeners to his podcasts? Or what if he's asking that so that his church will grow numerically and he can brag about how big he's grown his church? You do not have because you do not ask. And when you do ask, you ask wrongly. So what are the things these people would be asking for? What are the things that they want and yet it doesn't seem they have the audacity to ask God for? And when they do ask God for it, they ask with the wrong motives. Well... It seems to be the case that they're asking for things like power. They're asking for things like position. They're asking for things like reputation and glory. And the thing is, they're asking for selfish means. They're not asking so that they can use these things to glorify God. They're asking so that they can have these things for their own glory. You do not ask, and you do not have, and when you do ask, you ask wrongly. And this is causing all these quarrels and all these fights in the church. This jealousy and this selfishness that is seen even in prayer. It's seen in the community. You know, I recently heard a story about a large church. There's a big church in Louisville named Southeast Christian Church. It's got about 20,000 members. It's incredibly huge. And I've always looked up to Bob Russell, the guy who was at that church for like 40 years And Bob Russell tells the story that in Louisville, there were two big-name pizza company owners that went to the same church. And when you have a 20,000-person church, that's completely reasonable. So these two guys who own pizza companies go to the same church. Well, these two guys get into a bidding war, basically. They get into a price war, and it starts to get a little bit personal. It starts getting ugly. It goes from nice gamesmanship to personal attacks, even within the church, because they want each other's business. Bob Russell hears about this, and he says, you know what, it's ridiculous that we as brothers in Christ can't figure this thing out, that we're making ourselves look foolish, that we're causing all these divisions over a few dollars of pizza. 
So Bob Russell calls these two big-name pizza owners into his office. He sits him down and he says, guys, I think we can figure this out. I think we can work this out in a way that's not going to make you look bad. It's not going to make the church look bad. It's not going to make your companies look bad. And it's not going to make the body of Christ look bad. And they say, okay, well, go on, Bob. And he says, all right, well, here's the thing. You're called to love one another. You're called to be honest. You're called to be fair. And he goes on in this big rant about why they shouldn't be quarreling the way they are. And he says, so guys, what do you think? Let's just stop the fighting. Let's stop the bickering. The two pizza company owners look at each other and they say, nah. They went on and it ended up being a very ugly thing. Bob Russell tried his hardest to help the quarrel stop in its tracks, to nip it in the bud, but it just didn't work. These types of quarrels all root back to jealousy and selfishness. Commentator Doug Moo says that every single problem in history, every single fight, every single disagreement, whether it's national or individual, they can all be traced back to jealousy or selfishness. Every single one of them. And the problem is, this doesn't just happen within churches. Sometimes churches fight with one another over it. I heard another story about a church out west, a big church. They spent a lot of time developing this church logo. They poured tons of resources into it, tons of money into it, tons of time into it. And they got this logo they were really proud of. That they were extremely excited to share with the community around them. That they thought would help them better reach the community. Well... Another church, a small church, a few hours away, saw the logo too. And they liked the logo. They didn't exactly copy it, but they used it for inspiration for their new logo. And the two logos were extremely similar. Well, the big church finds out about this. And they put all that time into their logo. They don't want it snatched out from under their nose. So what do they do? Do they call the church? and try to talk it out like civil, loving followers of Christ? Do they somehow communicate with one another through email, saying, hey, you know what, this has been a big mix-up. We know you probably didn't mean to do this. We know you probably didn't mean any harm. But here's the thing. Can you stop using this logo? We'd really appreciate it. No, they didn't do that. They send a letter to the little church that says, if you don't stop using the logo in two weeks, then you're going to be hearing from our lawyers. And it made the church look bad. It made the church look terrible because they couldn't figure out their differences amongst each other. They had to bring the world into it, even threatening lawsuits over it. These quarrels, these fights, they can all come back to jealousy and selfishness. The pizza owners are selfishly not wanting to let anybody else have any business. They're jealous that maybe the other pizza owner is more loved and more appreciated, and their pizza is better. So they're jealous. The big church is jealous that the little church may try and steal some of their success with the logo that they worked so hard on. And you can count them on your hands. How many quarrels and fights happen in churches because of jealousy and selfishness? If you're quarreling or fighting with someone right now in this church, or really any other fellow follower of Christ, examine yourself in the mirror and ask yourself, maybe, just maybe, is there a little bit of selfishness that I'm dealing with? Is there a little bit of jealousy 
that I'm harboring in my mind and in my heart that maybe I just need to get rid of. Because these quarrels and these fights simply aren't worth it. James says that there's no in-between. That if you strive for the things of the world, the things we talked about like power and influence and glory, then guess what? You can't love God too. He says that if you strive to be a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. That sounds a lot like what John would say in 1 John 2, 15 through 17. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. These things that the people that James is writing to are asking for, they're not worth it. They fade away. They lose their luster. No matter what it is that you ask for here on this earth and this life, it'll fade away eventually. It'll be outdated It'll be corrupted by moss or rust. It'll fade. And John is saying that the things that are worth having are the things that make you a friend of God. Like we talked about, James said that every good and perfect gift is from above. The only things worth praying for, the only things worth having, the only things worth asking for are the things that only God can give, not the world. Pick up in verse 5 of James chapter, James chapter 4. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, there has been some debate over verse 5. It says that God yearns for the spirit within us. And some commentators have wondered, is this the Holy Spirit that James is talking about? Or is this some spirit that every single person created in God's image has? And most commentators believe that it's option number two. That this is a spirit that every single one of us has as people created in God's image. And God yearns for it. He strives for us to come back to relationship with him. James said earlier that, these people are adulterous people. If you've ever read the book of Hosea, Hosea is a prophet sent from God. And God tells Hosea to go and marry a prostitute. And Hosea says, well, why would I do that? And God says, well, your marriage with her is going to be an example of my relationship with Israel. And you're going to show the people of Israel what it's like to be in my shoes and my faithful love for them, even though they abandon me and even though they break the covenant that we made. And so Hosea says, well, all right, I'll marry her. So he marries Gomer. Well, Gomer does exactly what he should have expected her to do. She's unfaithful to the covenant that she made with Hosea. So what does Hosea do? Does he throw her out on the curb and say, good riddance? No, he redeems her. He buys her back from the man that she was with. And he says that from now on, Gomer, it's going to be you and me. And I've been faithful to you, and I expect you to be faithful to me too. When we love the things of the world, 
we commit adultery against God because he has made a covenant with us and he's hold up his end of the covenant. Are we holding up our end of the covenant? He yearns for the spirit that lives inside of us. He yearns for our creativity, our personality, our senses of humor, every single part of us. God wants it. God wants you and he wants me to be back in relationship with him, to be his children the way we were always intended to be. Look at Malachi chapter 3, verse 7. It seems to be the source of that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble passage, that in Proverbs 3.34. But Malachi 3.7 says, From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. We're going to get to that here in just a second in verse 8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. To you. But while we're at it, look at Proverbs chapter 3, 34 and 35. We read in that passage, Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. The wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgrace. James says that we are called to humble ourselves before God, that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, sometimes we hear that and we think, now, wait a minute, grace is something that you can't earn. So if I have to be humble to get it, does that not mean that I'm earning it? Well, here's the thing. It's not a situation of someone sitting back and saying, man, you know what? I really need that grace, but I need to be humble to get it. So I guess I better have a lower view of myself. That's not how it works. The kind of person who even understands they need grace in the first place is the kind of person who is all ready been humbled by God. If you don't have that humility, you wouldn't even think of your need for grace. So the challenge is that we are called to ask God to humble us so that he will draw near to us and that we may draw near to him. Pick up in verse 7, repeating what we've talked about a little bit already. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. It may not just remind you of Malachi chapter 3, verse 7. It may remind you of a passage in Revelation where Jesus says that I knock on the door, and if you'll just open the door, then I'll come in, and we can eat together, and we can be in relationship again that we won't be enemies anymore. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. James says some pretty harsh things here. He calls us sinners. He calls us double-minded. Look at verse 9. He says, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. You know, we don't like using the word sinners, We don't like telling people to cleanse their hands. We don't like using the word double-minded. We don't like being called those things because they seem a little bit rude. They seem a little bit mean and a little bit harsh and a little bit judgmental. But here's the thing. James does not use these words to make us just feel horrible about ourselves, to just make us feel like dirt. That's not what James is trying to do. He's trying and calling to us to have a realistic view of who we are. 
Because if we're all honest with ourselves, we have issues. We're messed up in our relationships, in our finances, in our physical health, in our spiritual health. Everywhere we look, we've got problems. And James doesn't worry about pretending they're not there. He says that we're sinners, that we're double-minded. But he doesn't say these things to make us feel hopeless. He says these things to help us turn to the one thing that does offer hope. Look at Romans chapter 7, verses 18 through 25. Paul says something similar to what James is saying, starting in verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is good, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. No, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Not a very good prognosis, is it? Paul does not seem to have a very high view of himself. He says that nothing good dwells in me, and I try to do good, but when I try to do good, I end up doing the bad things I don't want to do. And then when I think that I'm not going to do the bad things that I don't want to do, and I'm trying to do the good things, I end up doing the bad things after all. Not a very good situation to be in. Seems like Paul is fighting a losing battle. And the truth is that he is. And if not for the next statement, being called sinners, being called double-minded, hearing that we have nothing good dwelling within us, yeah, that would leave us pretty hopeless. But Paul doesn't stop there. He closes in verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He asks the question, who will deliver me from this body of death? If this is who I am, if this is what I have to look at in the mirror each day, what hope do I have? Paul says, well, the only hope I have is Jesus, period. Because I can never be the kind of person that God expects me to be as someone created in his image on my own. So what do I do? How do I somehow win this war even though every day it seems like I'm losing the battle? Paul says, thanks be to God for Jesus Christ our Lord. Only he can deliver us from the predicament we find ourselves in. From the sin that lives inside of us. From the double-mindedness that we are so often guilty of permitting. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We're called to humble ourselves before the Lord. Every single one of us. Verse 11 in James chapter 4. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? As I read this passage for the first time, it seems like verses 11 and 12 are just kind of randomly tacked on at the end. 
he goes this completely different subject of judging your neighbor, but really this little couple verses ties everything together in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. The whole idea is this. You're having quarrels. You're having fights. There's jealousy and there's selfishness in all of you. And it's causing these issues, maybe even leading you to murder. So what does James say? Humble yourselves. You can't have it both ways. You can't be a friend of the world and still be a friend of God. You're a friend of the one and an enemy of the other, whichever way you choose to split it. Humble yourself before God. He calls them sinners. He calls them double-minded. He says that if you draw near to God, that he will draw near to you. So how in the world does judging come into this? Well, really, this has all been about humility. The entire passage has been about humility. It's been about willing to admit who we are. Willing to admit our hopelessness without Christ. Even if that isn't a great picture of ourselves. And then he says, don't judge. He says that if you judge, you're placing yourself in the position of God because you're doing the things that only God gets to do. God is the judge, not you, not me. And if you think that you are, then you're basically saying to God that, you know what, God, I know you're the judge, but I can probably do a little bit better job at it than you can. And then if you say that you can do a better job than God's teachings, the law, then you're basically saying, you know, God, well, you should have made your teachings a little bit better. Because I can do a better job of determining who's in the right and who's in the wrong than you can. That's a problem. And it shows a lack of humility. What does this all come back to? It comes back to humility. There's a huge amount of division in this church. And James tells his audience not to judge one another because the ultimate sign of arrogance, the ultimate sign of a lack of humility is judging. He says that, you know what, if you look at your neighbor, you need to realize that no matter where they are, they don't need the gospel any more than you do. That we all need the gospel the same amount. Whether you've been a Christian for five weeks or for 50 years, you're still just as much in need of the gospel as any other person out there. And you're not in any better shape than they are. Because if we all trust in ourselves, we all end up being hopeless. But here's the thing. You don't have to be hopeless anymore. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So before you judge one another, before you let your selfishness and your jealousy and your anger, before you let your prayers become tainted with your jealousy and your selfishness, humble yourself before God. And if you're willing to do that, your jealousy and your selfishness probably won't live very long. They'll still be there from time to time. There will still be that battle that Paul talks about in Romans 7. But you'll be a church that is humble. You'll be believers that are humble. And you know what that leads to? That leads to unity. Flip over last passage of the day, John chapter 17, 20 through 21. Jesus, in his last prayer, before he is betrayed and arrested in John's gospel, says this in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, 
so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus seems to be praying that his followers would be united. And he seems to say that if his followers aren't united, then that's going to be an obstacle to people believing Christ is who he said he is. And the only way that we can be united as brothers and sisters in Christ is if we're humble, as if God humbles us, if we refuse to let jealousy and selfishness get in the way. We refuse to let little petty fights and quarrels divide us. We refuse to judge one another. We refuse to somehow think that we're on a better playing field than anybody else. When we realize that we are just as hopeless without the gospel as that person who makes us angry, as that person who seems to not have their life together at all compared to our lives, then guess what? When we realize these things, then we'll be united. Then we'll have humility. When we understand that no one needs the gospel more than anybody else, that's when we'll be united. And that's when this church can do incredible things in this community. And if we refuse to be united, why would we expect this church to do anything in the community? Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for your grace. God, we are so desperately in need of it. And God, we don't read these things leaving with a sense of complete hopelessness or helplessness. But God, we read these things knowing that you provided the answer for our hopelessness and our helplessness. That your son died on the cross for us Not so that we can be divided over petty differences. Not so that we can let jealousy and selfishness rule everything we do. You did that so that we could be in relationship with you again. God, I pray that this church will be united. I pray that the arrogance that all of us deal with, that all of us wrestle with from time to time, We'll just kill it off. That we'll be a church that loves one another, that refuses to judge one another, that loves the community around us. God, thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you that every single day you remind us that we need it just as much as we did the day before. And I pray that when we realize our need for the gospel, It'll create that much more urgency in delivering the gospel to the world around us. We love you. We thank you for Jesus. We ask these things in his name. Amen. If you have questions about our church, we'll have several of our elders standing at the side of the room. If you have questions about becoming a follower of Christ, maybe you're someone who admits that you really haven't been humbled by God. I pray that you'll talk to one of those guys. They'd be happy to pray with you, happy to answer any questions that you might have.